Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Happy birthday, William Shakespeare. Today is the day. Today is William Shakespeare's, some people think, birthday, although that's not for sure, actually. But what we do know is today is William Shakespeare's death day. So we can say happy death day. Uh, today, Miguel de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, also died. In fact, he died on the same day of the same year, the 23rd of April, 1616. And because you're considered such great authors, this is considered the day of literature. And Dean and I, we thought that we'd uh, briefly explain to you why Shakespeare it's such a great author, why he's so timeless, why he's so relevant, and simply why he's such an enjoyable read. And then we've been reading Shakespeare the whole month, rereading and reading some, in my case, reading some plays I haven't read before. Uh, how was your experience for the whole month of Shakespeare? No, it was really good. I mean, we have the we're in the fortunate position that we're we're picking the ones we want to start with, so we're doing our yeah. favorites first. But yeah, we've done great. five and we're working on a sixth, and it's 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 very very enjoyable. I'll tell you one thing: I read these first a couple of years ago. And mm. I find at the time, you know, the language is quite tricky and things like that. Uh, but the, on the second read through, I'm finding it a lot more straightforward, a lot easier to grasp. Yeah, well, look, I've got to say the same thing I want to say. Um, I think the first play I ever read fully was uh, the Scottish play. Mm -hmm. uh, so Macbeth. Oh, should I be saying that, that word? And I really was struggling through it. And I, I, I enjoyed it at the end a bit, but I felt like that was very difficult. Uh, but then uh, a few years later, I did read maybe five or six plays on one go. And I just automatically, it was a lot easier for me. And I think it was A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the second one I read fully and just really enjoyed it. And recently, again, now then back to it, uh, now I find it quite easy. I have to say, I'm not having difficulties. Um, now, I do love languages. And it helps when you, when you kind of love languages and understand language. If you understand Latin, German, it's old English. But if you get the annotated, I would recommend you start with an annotated version. And he, he would probably have to um, learn a tiny bit of the grammar, understand that thy means your or that thou is the colloquial version of you. Mm -hmm. um, it comes from German, by the way. So if you know German, uh, Maybe thou I'm comes just from assuming du that everyone knows that. But like, I don't know, these millennials don't even know what books are. So I guess they don't know what, what thy means. Yeah. So guys, yeah, well, look, this, this is time for you to refresh, refresh thy old English. And yeah, basically, if you go, if you go beyond the language, it's not too difficult. You will really enjoy these stories because they're timeless. They're really timeless. I feel like this could have been written. When I, when I read Macbeth, even though I found it difficult, I felt that play could have been written yesterday. That's how modern it felt. That's, mm -hmm. It also was really, really violent and and vicious and i just thought all right this could have just been written last year because it feels also like it could have been controversial and i feel like i met macbeth not being written and were written last year or this year would be a controversial play right now 
you know, it's we just... have um, noticed that actually, and you know, in a few of the ones we've mentioned uh, while we've been discussing mm. them, that you know, actually, this this could have been done as a modern play. You know, it's the the yeah. themes are are real and they're modern and they're still alive. I mean, we just we just Very wrapped much, up yeah. our recording of Romeo and Juliet and. Those themes of love are still true and still alive. That teen, that teen love, but in yeah. most of these plays, we've noticed that Shakespeare. I think that's the genius of Shakespeare, is yeah. writing something yeah. that can sustain for hundreds of years, and you can read it. And once you, you know, once you get past the language, basically, you, it's a, it's a modern play. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. Um, and of course, uh, the thing is, Shakespeare wasn't in. You can't say Shakespeare is an intellectual. He wasn't one of the university playwrights that were kind of in at the time, like Christopher Marlowe, um, for example, or Robert Greene. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were kind of like more intellectual, whatever that means, uh, in the sense that they went to universities. They were possibly pretentious. Um, they were more pretentious in their, in their kind of like behavior. And William Shakespeare had a, just kind of a kind of normal upbringing, Latin education, the thing is, when you think he's being very intelligent and kind of like elitist, he's not really being elitist for the time. So, I mean, those Greek references, I admit they're hard, even for me. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I get them. I have to look them up. But at the time, this was kind of like, it's kind of your normal education. So you did have some, you did need some education, but basically he's not trying to be too difficult. He's trying to be quite accessible. We're just saying that, then, right? With Roman and Julia, they have a prologue explaining the whole play. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's sometimes it's oversimplified for modern audiences, even. Uh, made it a bit easier, especially Roman and Juliet. Um, and basically, you know, all those Henry V and VI, I have no idea who they were, you know, to be honest. But at the time, at the time, people really got that, you know, and they at were the time, often... people knew them, yeah. And they were often metaphors for uh, contemporary uh, members of the monarchy, monarchy family. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so it's all very kind of um, very well at the time. And you might have to look up the references, Greek references, historic references, and the language. But apart from that, it, it there is a very universal claim and universal themes in Shakespeare. Um, yeah, I mean. And I, have I think, to that, say, I think that's, uh, that's one of the reasons we haven't been doing the Henrys really yet is because, I mean, first of all, they're very mm. long, but also they, yeah. they're they a little bit less relatable to us now than the other plays are. The romances, and the, the tragedies, the comedies, they're a lot more relatable still. And history is the history plays of Shakespeare were early plays. So, yeah, so possibly, well, they, they just aren't as popular nowadays anyway, are they? And that has to probably that has more to do with a very specific Roman Juliet uh, their archetypes that um, you know they exist in basically every third Hollywood film that comes out is yeah. Roman Juliet. It is, it is, and every every fifth film that comes out is Hamlet about a man who's lost his father and but actually one of his family members killed him and he's going to seek revenge, but. It, He's hesitating. It's all about hesitation, Hamlet. Now, and hold on, hold yeah. on, DJ. If every third is Romeo and Juliet and every fifth is Hamlet, does that mean that every 15th is a crossover <laughs> special? <laughs> it's a crossover special, exactly, yeah. And look, guys, every Shakespeare play has been interpreted so often in many different ways. It's brilliant. And like we were just talking also about the genius, uh, like, you know, the plot devices used and, you know, a comedy of errors, which is all about, like, just, like, how can this happen? But it somehow did. And it's still 
more or less realistic up to a point. Some plays, as you like it, they really lose the realism. But in general, like it's all kind of, you can imagine this really happening. That's what I really like about Shakespeare. It's not, he doesn't use too many fantastic elements, but even if he does use them, it's still kind of like, yeah, I can imagine this happening. This is like a human being would react. At least a human being who's maybe in an extreme situation, like a king, uh, like a person who really wants to be king, like Richard III, mm-hmm. but is actually hunchback and not so good looking. Um, yeah, you can imagine th- these kind of people existing and doing it. Um, yeah, actually, one of my favorite plays is Richard III, uh, Dean, but we haven't done that yet. So I'm looking forward to doing it. Uh, I find it a very uh, deep kind of play. So I kind of wanted more time mm-hmm. and talk about this later. My uh, favorite, just, my favorite yeah. is the unreleased uh, Henry the Sixth, Part Five Thousand and Forty Seven, because I just well, it's a, I really want to know just about what he had for dinner that day. You know, I just got to get really, really in depth with Henry the <laughs> Sixth. So there you go, guys. There's love, Henry's. Um, looking forward to um, you're looking forward to meeting you. And I think that's wraps it up about Shakespeare, guys. Um, do you want to say, Dean, we've got a little treat for yeah. For so the, our, the treat yeah. is that we are we've we've pre-recorded five and we're working already on a on a sixth, and there will be more. Um, mm. So as part of our, we've mentioned before, we wanted to do the Bufanda Boys, which is going to be our uh, premium, you know, bonus content that you can you can get and you can pay for. And the first the first sub show within the Bufanda Boys is going to be the Playboys. And we we put go. on our, um, our our pipes and our slippers and our maroon uh, smoking jackets and got some pretty girls <laughs> hung around the Playboys mansion. And we've got <laughs> some plays for you. We've done, as I say, we've got five already done. And we're going to show you the first two um, right now. And they're going to be released just for this weekend uh, for mm-hmm. free as a, as, a little, as a little teaser and to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday. And then if you like it from the 1st of May, everything will be launched online on our Patreon. You'll immediately have five episodes that you can get. And of course, we'll be working then on, on more. And uh, I think we'll, we'll aim to have, you know, at, at least one extra show per month on there. So it's going to be something, um, something that you can subscribe to and you will get content uh, going forward. Plus there's other treats. There's higher tiers that you can get t-shirts and all sorts. So definitely look out. It's going to be patreon.com slash booksboys. And that's going to go live from the 1st of May. So guys, so we're looking forward to, to your reaction. And also, um, yeah, today is Shakespeare's birthday. It's my birthday as it's well. It's your birthday. Happy birthday, PJ. Thank you. And it was your birthday on Tuesday. So it was indeed. It was indeed. So you're, you're three days older than I am. But as I just said, Shakespeare could have been born a bit earlier than 23rd. So Dean, your birthday might be Shakespeare's birthday. So it I might just want to... But You're so might in, in, you know in that case so might any other day in April. <laughs> you know. Yes, or even March, right? Or but, March, uh, yeah. Look, but we're keeping. Look, we we, just, <laughs> we, did, we would like it. We would like it to be our birthday, Shakespeare's birthday. So we're just going to clutch our straws, right? We're going to grasp so the straws. We're going to we're going to make it how we want it. We're going to do it as we like it, PJ. Oh, nice one, Dean. I think we should wrap it up because I cannot beat <laughs> thy wit. That's us. So, guys, you are going to hear the first two. Which were let's let's tell what they were. The first two were oh. the Tempest, which is the second one, and right uh-huh. coming up right now, the very first one, Midsummer Night's Dream. Classic guys. So the two fantasy plays of Shakespeare. Uh, we started off with that. So hope you enjoyed them. Happy Shakespeare Day.
welcome to our first mini episode of Play Pals. BJ, what are we doing today? Today, we're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream. The classic, the one and only, the unique play by William Shakespeare, also known as Billy the Lad. Billy the Lad, or, or Guillermo Shakespeare has the... <laughs> Guillermo Shakespeare. That's what they call him, yeah, that's what they call him. So that's what I made a mistake today. here. I, we're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream. So <laughs> what what this play is going to be? This mini show is going to be basically um, sort of semi review, semi educational kind of sh- uh, play reviews. So we'll start with some Shakespeare's. Uh, I I got confused, PJ, through the week. I I confused a Midsummer Night's Dream with uh, Midsummer Murders. So I watched a oh, lot of episodes oh. of old ladies solving crimes right. on uh, British television, and then I realized that that wasn't the right it's not... the right thing at all. So, no. and you're wondering where Shakespeare got all those influences from? Like, what, I, yeah, what was I, I was there? Like... really, really baffled, and then I I realized my mistake. So I've gone and I've read this oh, play, A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's one of his shorter plays, to be fair. It is indeed. It's um, it's also um, one of two plays that are, have fantasy in them. So Shakespeare doesn't use fantasy in his plays, except in The Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. Mm-hmm. And before we begin actually talking about this play, I want to tell the people uh, that um, Dean and I, we've had this idea to start off with Shakespeare because 23rd of April is uh, book day. And it's also, it's also my birthday, actually. So I'm very, sad. I'm very happy to be born this day because it's the day that Shakespeare died. PJ, in... I feel swindled. I feel swindled here on Books Boys. You share your birthday with Shakespeare. Do you know who I share my birthday with? Who do you, who do you share your birthday with? Hitler. Do you really? Yes. 20th of April, three days before you. I share my birthday with Hitler. You got Shakespeare. <laughs> you got Shakespeare. <laughs> I got Hitler. So... Okay. To be fair, he might. But, oh, oh, but listen to this. Shakespeare was, they thought Shakespeare was born on the 23rd. He died on the 23rd. But he was actually baptized on the 23rd of April, which means he might have been born on the 20th of April, Dean. Okay. But I'll you might that. share a birthday with... <laughs> but I share the death day. I don't know how good that is, actually. You might share I'm the birthday. grasp at those straws and... <laughs> yeah. So you might share Shakespeare's birthday, but you definitely share Hitler's birthday. So you kind of like... It's a bittersweet life, you know? And basically, we've decided... <laughs> basically, we decided to do this because just to celebrate literature... Because on that day, Hitler, sorry, on that day, Shakespeare died in 1616, 23rd of April. And so did Miguel de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote in Spain. So two of class, two of the world's most renowned writers uh, died on that very day. And so we're talking about just a handful of Shakespeare plays uh, all through April. And um, yeah. And starting off with a Midsummer Night's Dream. So, enough rambling. Um, Sultan, should I should I intro- should I start with the? Yeah, I think I think you've read it slightly more recently than me, so you can you can take point. Exactly. Yeah. So it is. Um, yeah, I think I'm also taking the lead because it is among my favorite Shakespeare plays, and it's definitely um, the Shakespeare play I remember the best from my childhood. So it's the one that they played. I just remember kind of like we were preparing for it, acting in it. And so for me, it's a beautiful play. Anyway, Shakespeare didn't write fantasy. He only used fantasy in A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. And that's very important because fantasy plays a big role 
in this play. It's it's basically about it's set in Greece, ancient Greece, and it's about um, four lovers. So that's what they're actually called. They're called four lovers: Hermia, Lysander, Demetrius, and Helena. And Helena. And basically, there's a bit of dilemma. There's a bit of a dilemma here, as so happens in modern society. Shakespearean society and ancient Greek society, sometimes love doesn't work out quite the way expected. So um, the idea is that Helena is in love with Demetrius, but Demetrius is in love with Hermia. Is it Hermia or Hermia, uh, Dean, actually? I'm getting very confused now. I've been pronouncing it Hermia, but now that you mention it, <laughs> okay. I think it is Hermia. <laughs> Hermia. Uh, so again, Helena is in love with Demetrius, but Demetrius is in love with Hermia, and Hermia is in love with Lysander. Now, that's okay, because Lysander is in love with Hermia, so that kind of works out. But obviously, Helena is very, um, is very, uh, very upset. So it's not, a, it's not a full circle. It's not that everyone loves someone else. It's, it's working out for Hermia and Lysander. All right, so that's fine. However, um, Hermia's father, Aegeus, is very upset. He doesn't want her to marry Lysander. He wants her to marry Demetrius. And so he goes to the Duke of Athens, Theseus, and talks to him about this. And Theseus agrees Hermia should marry the, the person her father wants her to marry, Demetrius. It's not working out that way. It's not working out. She wants to escape with Lysander to the outside of Athens, where, the, where that patriarchal law of Athens does not work anymore because she wants to get away. She wants she wants to be with Lysander no matter what. She's going to abandon her dad, abandon her Athens, which she describes at one point a heaven, and then now it's a hell. Now it's very important because she has to leave. So they're going to leave. Hermia is going to leave. She, she's going to meet up with Lysander at midnight. And Helena hears this they tell her this because she is, she is uh, Hermia's friend. And Helena has a bit of a problem. And this is where it gets inter- interesting. She wants Demetrius to fall in love with her. But Demetrius is in love with Hermia. So her idea is that Demetrius will follow Hermia and Lysander. Or, sorry, excuse me. Demetrius will meet up um, at the same place where Hermia and Lysander will meet at midnight. Mm-hmm. And Helena is hoping that his heart will break and that he, Demetrius, will come back to her because he was also Helena's, uh, Helena's former lover. Uh, if this seems confusing, it is confusing. So that's one of the um, things I want to talk about, about this over-romanticization, overdrive. Um, so I just want to stop here a second. Um, that's the first part of the play before, let's just say, the magic begins. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Dean, because I, I've been thinking a lot about this play, told you about this, mm-hmm. that there's some things I'd like to talk about. And first of all, what is your impression of those four lovers? Because they're just the four lovers. I mean, what, what do you think of them, actually? Do I mean, this they're is... complex characters? Yeah, I don't think they're necessarily, at least in what we see in the play, and it is a short play, I don't think they're overly complex, but there are some complexities. Mm. You know, we, as you say, effectively, Demetrius and Lysander are currently both in love with Hermia. And, you know, per Hel- Hel- Helena, I guess it's Helena, like Helena of, of 
Troy. She's, you know, <laughs> she's got the unrequited love for, for Demetrius. So you're right, it is a bit complicated. You know, the waters get muddied a little bit and you've got a kind of love <laughs> square and, and a blues reference. Um, and, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're right that it, it can be complex, but these are the kind of characters I like. You know, anyone who listens to the main show and who knows my, my love for kind of Victorian romance, you know, this this kind of ultra romance um, is, is, is my my bread and butter when it comes to reading. This is what I really, really enjoy. So I like this play and I, and I like those four characters a lot. Yeah, they're, um, they're great characters. Uh, I, I would say, though, I'm going to get back to it. I have a few thoughts so about a few theories uh, about uh, these four characters and what they're supposed to kind of represent. But basically the story, just to continue to talk about the story, first of all. So the idea is that uh, Lysander meets up with Hermia at midnight to escape. And Demetrius, uh, is, Demetrius knows that Hermia will be there. So he's going to be there too to try and coy her back. All right. And Helena is kind of behind Demetrius, uh, hoping that his heart She's will break. She's tagging along. Do you get She's sad for, for her? Do you feel the pity for her that I felt? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's unfortunate. And there's, it's very clear at the beginning that she's very jealous of Hermia because Hermia, she has she has the love of two men and Helena has no love, really. But you know what's a shame? I mean, I know that you can't reduce love to mathematics, but if Demetrius hmm. looked and thought, well, there's four people and two couples and, you know, it's not like he has a shot with Hermia because Hermia and Lysander are very much in love and it's mutual, yeah. you know, and, and poor Helena loves him. It It just... It just works, but he he overcomplicates it by insisting that, you know, he wants Hermia, who he's never going to have, and he's yeah, it's right. a shame. Yeah, definitely, and that shows you right. Love is not so. Love is a is the main theme of a Midsummer Night's uh, Dream, but uh, I I think there are some uh, many different facets of love uh, being played here. But anyway, the story is that they meet up there. They don't meet up. It's just that they all kind of clash together. They all happen to be in the middle of this forest. And yeah, things go a bit haywire basically when they when Hermia decides to fall asleep with uh, Lysander because it's late, it's midnight, so they're just gonna fall asleep there. And um, because the fairy king and the fairy queen then meet, and the fairy king is jealous. Fairy King is jealous of the Fairy Queen. So the name of the Fairy King is... Um, Oberon. Exactly, thank you. And the Fairy Queen is Tishana or Titania. And basically, Oberon is jealous of her because she's got an Indian changeling. So it's a kind of a war, the kind of a beautiful child or beautiful boy. It's very unclear, actually, what, who he is. He never appears physically in the play. And Oberon is just is desperately jealous. He wants Titania to be her to be his queen, and there is a big division in the fairy uh, land. So it's a big division, which uh, parallels the uh, division that's mentioned at the beginning of the play of the Duke of Athens to Zeus marrying the queen of the Amazons, Hippolyta. Now, are you aware so, that that's that's Theseus? That he's um, a real well, I say real, but an actual king of Athens. Um, semi-mythical so it's not it's not really clear if he was real or not but i'm guessing that's ah, right. what Shakespeare, uh, based the character on that semi-mythical finder uh, you know early king of athens 
Interesting, interesting. Okay, and they kind of paralleled that. Uh, but basically, Oberon has uh, is going to seek revenge. He's going to get that changeling. He wants Titana's attention by doing something mischievous. He gets his uh, he gets his well, he gets his hobgoblin, Robin Puck Goodfellow, to <laughs> to uh, do something for him. So basically, he has to get a magical flower. That when you put when you put it when you put the the dew of the magical is it the dew of the magical yeah. flower on um, someone's eyelids, that person when when that person wakes up he or she will fall in love with the first being he or she encounters, and it's a bit of the idea is that when she wakes up she's going to just Titana Queen of the Fairies she's just going to fall in love with whatever beast or being is there and she's going to be made a fool of and then. Oberon um, is going to take that, take that um, enchantment offer at some point and tell her what a fool she was, and give me that Indian ch- changeling. And anyway, the idea is that it goes haywire when, because Oberon is not such a bad fellow. He sees that um, he sees that um, there is a, there is love in the area that's not going very well. So he sees that he sees Helena being terribly upset that Demetrius is not in love with her. So there is a scene in it where Demetrius is looking for Hermia and Helena's tagging along. And he, Demetrius kind of says, like, kind of like, you know, why don't you go away? You, you. He's very, you know, very like, harsh with her. Very, very harsh with her. Yeah, he's very harsh. And then uh, Oberon has a lot of compassion for Helena, as we as we do. And, poor and Helena, he t- she's just this downtrodden, unrequited romance. She. <laughs> I, I don't know. She I she know. resonates with me because she's similar to a lot of the Victorian characters that I'm obsessed with. But just this <laughs> this idea that her love isn't being required. But she continues despite the abuse, despite the insults, despite the clear it's, indication that this guy thinks nothing of her and treats her like it's dirt. A bit of a, she just pursues him. It's a bit of a Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, uh, happening here. A bit of a Woodring Heights uh, phenomenon. It Basically, is, yeah. It is. It is sufficiently withering. It is sufficiently withering. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, all right. And he tells uh, back to Oberon, King of the Fairies. He tells Robin, poor good fellow, to put a bit of that flower enchantment on Demetrius' eyes, because Demetrius then falls asleep, and Helena falls. Asleep. It's amazing how they just all fall asleep. Like it's it's kind of like all right, but it's a fairy land, so they just kind of like fall asleep. And however, Robin, poor good fellow. Now there are two theories about this. Either he's just a mischievous little git. And, he, and he's just like, he just wants a bit of fun. Or he generally doesn't know uh, who Oberon is infer- referring with because he sees a different man. He sees Lysander instead of Demetrius because Oberon says there are two Greek, uh, there's a Greek woman and a Greek man and the Greek man is not in love. And so when everyone's like asleep on the ground and the hobgoblin just sees Lysander and, and says, all right, well, I'm going to put the dew on his eyes. And the thing is when Lysander wakes up, he sees Helena, not not as true love Hermia. He sees Helena and then falls in love with Helena, but Helena is not in love with him. I think this was an honest mistake. I mean, I know that that Robin Goodfellow Puck is meant to be semi mischievous, but it was an honest mistake I, to make. He'd I never think seen so. these I think people before, you know. Because, no, I think so. Yeah, I think because he just encountered. So, like, obviously, it's just it's, you see. Um, People have also said that this is a difficult play to put on stage because basically I think the setting is supposed to be a lot bigger 
than you can imagine. So it's like a big forest clearing. Yeah. And it's just yeah. that, yeah, it's just that Robin just uh, encounters uh, Lysander first. He said he knows he's looking for a Greek band. He puts a dew on his eyes. But Lysander then wakes up and Helena is just uh, coming across him. He falls in love with her. And this is what I love because then everyone is in love with someone who is in love with someone else. And that's what I love about it. This is when the play gets interesting. Right? Yes. I love it because just to, su- just to summarize, Helena is in love with Demetrius still, but Demetrius is still in love with Hermia, but Lysander is now not in love with Hermia. He's in love with Helena, but Hermia is in love with Lysander. Like the way to fix this was to make Demetrius love Helena, but they did the opposite. They made Lysander love Helena. So yeah, well, it was a, it was a mistake by Robin. Yeah, uh, Do you know what? It's a okay. little bit convenient. And again, I lo- I love the play, and I don't mean it as a criticism. Uh, it's it's yeah. necessary for the plot device, but the size of that forest is very convenient. <laughs> it's a lot of like, oh, yeah. now she's over here, and now he's over here, and he got the wrong one, and people are coming and going through the forest, and you know they, they show up at the right time for the story. Kind of, you know, it's a bit. It's a little bit convenient yeah, at times. It is a bit, yeah. Um, so yeah, I like to talk about this because so we're I'm kind of expecting, semi-expecting some people read this, so we don't have to get on too much about the story. But I just wanted to summarize some of the story without spoiling the ending. But just to talk about um some of my um uh, thoughts, uh, and, and please Dean share with me. I just wanted to mention one thing, first of all, about uh the lovers. Uh, basically, I think when I was reading the four lovers, I think there there is also like quite a dark side to the play. I don't think it's just a lighthearted. It generally is a comedy. It's kind of a comedy, although I don't really see like a classical Shakespeare comedy either. It's not a laugh. It's, a laugh yeah, it's comedy. not a it's not pure comedy, but I guess it's a it's a rom com. You know, it's a rom com. But do you see a dark side in the sense of I I think there's something. I think there's something inherently wrong with the four lovers. Can you can you guess what it is? Mm, no, you've 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 caught me off guard. I took it as a simple little. I just looked at the face value and thought, here's four people, and let's see if we can get them all to love the right people. Well, so what do you what are you seeing? Uh, dark. So I I think there's something very. Um, first of all, what I find interesting about this play is that um, it's quite ancient Greek style. So like mm-hmm. an ancient Greek play often begins with a chorus right where they kind of explains what happened until now yeah and it kind of begins in the middle often and that's unusual for nowadays as that's right um in the same sense this play it kind of begins in the middle there was a whole drama there was a whole development of falling in love which would have in rome and judith for example they meet fall in love and things happen but all of that drama is not present at all. Everyone's already in love with someone. Everyone's already in pain. Everyone's trying to marry someone. Uh, it even begins with a, a wedding or the beginning of, of the wedding of Teseus with Hippolyta. It begins in the middle and it even doesn't, it doesn't have a chorus. So that's one thing I like to mention about the structure. We skip a lot of but backstory. I... You're, you're right. It skips a lot of backstory. But what I'm saying, what's wrong with the four lovers is that if you think about it, first of all, we don't know their backstories at all. And these are supposed to be four individuals, all right? However, where is the individuality? They have nothing at all, nothing at all to back them up except their love for someone else. This is like saying, my name is PJ, I am in love with this person, and that's all I am. Like, that's it. 
that's just who I am. That's just that's me. Like, uh, there's nothing else. To yeah, them. there's nothing else to them. Like, you're 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 freaking me out a bit here. I, I have that feeling. You ever watch a horror movie alone at night, and then even though you know there's no spooky villain in your house, you still feel scared. That's kind of the feeling you're giving me now with the the dark side of these characters. So you gotta you gotta but fix I this think... for me, dude. Well, I can fix it for you if you want, but um, I think I'm just wondering how much uh, Shakespeare uh, intended to criticize weddings and love, because I get a feeling there's a very critical aspect to it. I think, mm. uh, first of all, I think, first of all, a lot of these characters don't make sense in what they're saying. Uh, um, and I want to focus on the four lovers, first of all, because the way the four lovers talk to each other, the the lovers, so the ones who are in love, so at least at least Lysander and Hermia and Helena to Demetrius. Um, I have to say, like often the 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 sentences they say, uh, it's almost a parody. It's almost a parody of like Romeo and Juliet. It's almost a parody of mm. shall I compare these so to you, a summer's you think day. They're not quite. They're not quite real human in a sense. I. First of all, it is called the Midsummer's Night's Dream. I think there's a very important kind of uh, psychological and even surreal aspect to it. How, how much true love is there, first of all, and how much, and if it's love, how healthy is it? Because basically, think about it. Hermia has actually is leaving Athens, and she describes it as heaven. She describes it as heaven at some point, and she says, now it has become my hell. And she's actually willing to go along with Lysander's plan completely spontaneously. He just says, like, look, we're just going to leave. You're going to abandon your father. You're just going to leave uh, your life behind. And I'm going to live in the wilderness with my aunt. God knows, you know, who, who she is. You know is. what? You're right. I just noticed something that's been staring me in the face the several times that I've read this play. So when I look at the Dramatis Personae, the list of characters, the lovers don't have anything. You know, they're not they Duke have... of Athens. They're not Carpenter. No. They're not anything they're just hermia in love with lysander demetrius uh, in, in, in love with her that's their only trait is that they are in love with someone they don't have anything else but in some folios this doesn't even say that in some shakespeare folios it just says the four lovers it just says the four names and then and then it has like that um what's that that kind of like what they it, where they put together like four four names and then together yeah, yeah. they're just four lovers and that's all they are and if you think about it everyone has an identity and so I want to mention also there is this kind of a subplot in the play, guys, for those of you who haven't read it, that's about these mechanicals. It's about these people who fix carpenters, weavers, uh, bellows, menders, tankers, and joiners, and tailors. And they get together to form a play. And now that's, I want to get back to that because I want to get back to that in a second. Uh, because that's a very, that's a big contrast to the four lovers. The four lovers are four lovers. And they have no identity. They and they they are sacrificing whatever identity they had before because they obviously had lives. And each one of them is taking a bit risk, especially Hermia and Lysander, who are in love with each other. And Demetrius, what is Demetrius? He's just following. I mean, and they have no self-respect. They really don't. Neither Demetrius nor nor Helena have really any self-respect at all. But if you think about, it, does Lysander and Hermia have self-respect? Hermia, she's just doing this because she loves Lysander. And Lysander's just kind of, he, he insults her dad as well, you know? It's like, it's like all over the place. It's just like, mm-hmm. this is Robin and Juliet the pirate. That's what, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but but now that you mention it, like, yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with anything you're saying. And I suppose when 
when one accepts the premises, you know, logically one must accept the conclusion, you know, what, what you're saying makes sense. And don't forget, there's also very, like, uh, this is getting very dark. So, uh, so guys, please don't be put off by this, but it might be an interesting reading. You can have your own opinion. Very important, though, is that the place where these four lovers meet happens to be a place where Hermia and Helena used to meet and share their bosoms, uh, stories and thoughts and insecurities. Um, there's a lovely picture I'm looking up uh, now. It's in the uh, found on Wikipedia uh, by Washington Alt. Uh, what's his name? Washington Alston. It's a picture, uh, basically, of Hermia and Helena reading a book. It doesn't appear in the play. The idea is that this painting is the idea is is what they had before. The only history these four lovers have is the shared friendship of those two women. And that friendship is completely annihilated in the play. If you think about it, because if when you start reading the play, they begin to hate each other, abominate each other. Mm. But we have to remember that the only thing we know about these four lovers, we know nothing about the man, and we know nothing about Hermia and Helen, except that Hermia is the daughter of um, we just know she's the daughter of a man who's very important in the government, uh, Egeus, and that she's best friends with Helena. And we only know that Helena was best friends with Hermia. And they talk about this in the middle of the play and at the beginning. They mention it twice. They talk about their combined friendship and then the second part where they describe it, their hurt that it's just breaking apart. Um. And the idea is that Helena actually does something very, she's not completely innocent. She does something very radical. She, uh, Lysander and Hermia share something. They share with her that they're going to escape and meet up in this, in the middle of the forest. And Helena betrays her friends. Helena betrays yeah. Hermia by telling Demetrius that Hermia will be there. Because as far as I can see, it's, uh, there is something vengeful there too. Hmm. Yeah. They're I sacrificing. They're sacrificing the individuality because Helen and Hermia are not just lovers of someone or in love with someone. They're also best friends, but the friendship is just is is thrown into the bin. Now that's some dark aspects I've seen into it, but um, I mean, I it's very interesting. you could argue that the majority of lovers in in Shakespeare's canon are yeah. you know not what we would consider a modern healthy relationship. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't worry massively about Lysander and Hermia with their plan to run off. I think that, okay, I'll buy that. But Demetrius and Helena, I think they definitely are both some sad individuals, you know, both pining after yeah. someone who's interested in someone else and who's really not interested in them at all. You know? Yeah. And they might be also like um, showing more like a carnal love. I feel like Demetrius and at least Demetrius where which one is true love and which one is more like a desire because sometimes it feels like this is very needy they feel very needy especially demetrius it's and helena they they feel like very needy um and the the language they and the language demetrius uses tends to be very vicious there's something like a bit of a freudian id kind of like escaping from him sometimes i feel like it's often just focused on the sex if you read between the lines not the true love it's like I, 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 I'm going to possess you. But the... one thing you mentioned, you mentioned these other chaps, yeah. uh, 
Quince oh. the Carpenter and his uh, band of merry men. Um, yeah. I mean, did you care about these people? I know what you're going to say. That so, do you want to go first? Do you care about them or not? No, I I just wanted them to go away and bring back the lovers because I wanted the story. No, don't get me wrong. I understood that there needed to be more characters than just the lovers. I was happy when we saw Theseus, the the Duke of Athens. I was even happy with the fairies because they were the ones working the magic. But mm-hmm. these guys, I just didn't understand. Didn't see any point in them, you know. They yeah. put on their little play, and it's not a very good play, and they just mess around a bit, and it's almost completely irrelevant to the story of the lovers. They don't intersect, really. Now, this is what I was hoping you mentioning this, because this is what I want to mention, because the first time I read this, I also thought, oh, they're, they're boring. And I love Nick Bottom. He's funny. But they seem very irrelevant. But the second time reading it, uh, I realized that this is the counterpart of the four lovers. If the four lovers don't have identity, all right, Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can say I'm reading too much into this. This is just an interpretation. What is the point of, of this subplot of these um, uh, mechanical engineers get, getting um, engineering specialists getting together and forming play? It seems completely irrelevant. And maybe story-wise, it is completely irrelevant. But if you think about it, there are two things about these people. First of all, they are uh, working-class people striving to perform arts. That's one thing. So they're actually working class people who are making themselves become actors. They're creating a new identity. Second of all, they fix things. They all have something in common, and that's that they fix things. Each one of them fixes and constructs something, which makes me think that these people have a complex identity, even though they seem completely irrelevant. Mm. It doesn't matter what they're saying, doesn't it's not relevant, but if you think about it, because they're very relevant, they're very, very relevant to play. They are because structurally they are because they appear right at the end of the play after the main plot is finished, guys. I'm not going to spoil it, but just so you know, it seems like very relevant because the main plot is finished and then these guys perform their play. And they and just it's, do it's their kind performance. of boring. It's boring. And it's a bit boring. It yeah. is a bit boring. But that makes me think, what was Shakespeare's point? I think Shakespeare is trying to say something here. I think Shakespeare is trying to like highlight. I think he's trying to say he's kind of like annoyed at over romantic young people. You think he's trying to bring us back to like a harsh reality after the kind of airy, fairy, dreamy romance that we've had with these unrealistic lovers? I think uh, more like the second part. I think unrealistic lovers versus the everyday person that lived in Shakespeare's life that was poor trying to create art. And you had, but the thing is very important that Lysander and Demetrius at the end and Tezeus, they're all men. I think there's also a bit of a feminist trait going on in the play I won't talk about. But these men, they're very superficial, by the way, because I don't know anything about these three men. They seem very, Hermia and Helena seem deeper to me. But these three men, they just joke about the play the whole time. And they say it's so hammy. It was interesting because these guys actually made a huge effort to create something in the forest and i think it's very important i think shakespeare's trying to actually say that i think shakespeare himself has more compassion for these uh, working men than the four lovers even though it might not seem that way the first time but they they overestimate themselves they make their own play worse by explaining everything they're doing because they're afraid that it, the play will be too good and that like the you know the lion will genuinely scare the ladies and you know so they then explain 
I am just a person in a lion costume, you know. And they they explain everything like over, and and they ruin their own play by by, um, by making breaking the fourth wall just constantly because they don't want anyone to think that it's real. <laughs> I think I think also possibly it's it's also a bit like Shakespeare is also making fun of the theater he saw on that day because he probably saw some really crap theater that was like mm. that. I think it's also messing about there. It's not that it's not it's complex. I think like he's also just like it, it, he's referring maybe to a lot of people you saw on the theater acting out like this. But I think there's also an aspect of they really are forming their own identities. They have several identities. Each one of them has several identities. And Nick Bottom, um, I want to talk about Nick Bottom because Nick Bottom is a weaver. And so guys, it's not much of a spoiler. You've all seen the donkey's head. He gets a donkey's head by Robin Pope Goodfellow. And Titiana falls in love with Nick Bottom with the donkey's head. And the, the, the crew, they run away because they think he's a monster. He's the thou has been uh, trans, uh, what is it, transposed or something. And they run away and Titiana, Titiana wakes up with the dew in her eyes and she sees Nick Bottom. Nick Bottom, who's got an ass's head. So it's very kind mm-hmm. of clear what. And yeah, and it's just that's like, most people see it as comic relief, but. Um, He's my favorite character, Nick Bottom. Honestly, he's my favorite character. I mean, what do you think of that whole kind of she's falling in love with the ass scene and the way he behaves? I mean, I suppose I just saw it as as the comic relief almost, you know, because in a sense, there's three loosely related mm-hmm. storylines here. There's the lover storyline, which was the one that I cared about. There's yeah. the... The, the joiners and the carpenters and so on that I, I didn't really care about. And then there's yep. this third story with Oberon and Titania and their their kind of mm. story um with the fairies. And yes, they enter into the story of the lovers a little bit, but as you say, mm. they, they do have their own separate thing with making Bottom the donkey and making um Titania fall in love with him and, and they're just kind of messing around in their own little subplot, their own little Gaiden. Um and for me, that was just a comic relief almost. That was just, you know, well, we've got we've got some comedy in here. It is meant to be a lighthearted play, and that's yeah. fine. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna use the if you're gonna use the magic on the lovers, then why not use it on on the fairy queen as well and make her fall in love with the donkey? Like, why why not? You know, definitely, dear listeners. Despite my uh, more kind of dark kind of theories, this play was actually made for someone's wedding, so it is supposed to be. Um... A wedding play and literally the wedding march you hear the 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 um no that's not sorry <laughs> actually did the wrong wedding march it's not that one it's the oh was it going again i think they're the same song yeah i think they're the same oh i don't know are they the same song anyway that's the wedding march the other yeah okay fine so anyway so that's um bit of comic relief oh, no, for you no, guys you're right. you're right they're not they're different no no they're two, they're two different wedding marches anyway one of the wedding marches and um sorry Peter, is... i haven't been married enough times i'm i'm, I'm lacking yeah you guys. haven't been married enough times so there you go <laughs> Nine five. so basically it's felix mendelssohn's um a wedding march and it comes from felix mendelssohn in 1842 did uh a midsummer night's dream like incidental music to the play so you can actually listen up on YouTube. I was just recommending it to Dean because I was listening to it earlier. I didn't know it. Uh, it's it's very enjoyable. It brings it kind of brings the atmosphere, the very joyous atmosphere, because it is a joyful play. 
and you can really hear it. And it's like, very, it's kind of very exciting. So I recommend that, Felix Mendelssohn. And my point is, this is a wedding play. This is, this is lighthearted. You're, but that's a thing. I think Shakespeare is making a lot of fun out of these four lovers. They're supposed to be a bit, yeah. for me, they're supposed to be a bit ridic- ridiculous, a bit. Even though I also feel for them, I do. And Nick and Bottom, you're, you're, I, I love it. It has that nice, you know, yes, it's a, it's a, it's essentially a rom-com, but you're right. I mean, it, obviously it's a Midsummer Night's Dream. It, it has a very dreamish quality to it and not mm. just the specific scenes where the lovers are under the spell and they fall in love with the wrong people, you know, not just that, but I think the whole thing, it, it has a very dreamish quality. And when you, when you finish it, you do feel that you've woken up from a kind of spell. It's, it's an intriguing and very, very captivating play. I, th- I think it's, it's yeah. something quite special among among Shakespeare's works. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, people often say that um, it's a very lyrical play and that it's sometimes better just to read the play rather than how it performed because mm-hmm. it just it's just such a dreamlike quality. It's more in the head. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, I haven't seen it performed, actually. Um, but just I feel the same. So when you read it, guys, it does feel like a dream. Feels, it's very enjoyable. Um, I, it, I there's. I've yeah. read all of Shakespeare's plays, but I, I've never seen yeah. a full performance because they're always three and a half hours long, and there you know, is. oh, I just can't do it. I just it's too long. I I I enjoy reading them, so we don't really have too much experience, do you know, watching Shakespeare. Um, now, what can I say about this one? I, I I think it does have dark themes. I do think that, but. It's like it's very enjoyable because the first reading is just completely enjoyable. But I think mm-hmm. if you think about it, you get to see this. I, I want to mention Nick Bottom. So Nick Bottom is a weaver. He's he's ridiculous. He's usually a hamish. He's usually portrayed by a ham actor. By the way, ham actor, which comes from Hamlet. So it's like the, the so ham to be hamish to be a ham actor is actually to be uh, acting out Hamlet, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, Anyway, but Nick Bottom is, I think, a very intriguing character. I don't know if you agree, Dean. Um, do you think he's just a bit of a he's a bit of an ass? Wink, wink. Do you think that, Dean, or do you think he's a bit he's of an very ass? Intriguing? I guess, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I mean, he has that. The bottom and the ass joke isn't the only time these these chaps' names are, you know. So the bellows mender's <laughs> name is Flute. You know, yeah. and the joiner's name is Snug, like a kind of snug joint. You know, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting Same that you pick Bottom out specifically among the others. I mean, obviously, yes, he's the one that gets chosen for the donkey scene, but but apart from mm-hmm. that, I mean, what what makes you think that he's special? Um, this is a theory I have, which might not be uh, Shakespeare's intention, though. I, I I have a feeling Shakespeare had some ideas about the four lovers. I think Nick Bottom is a very sort of interesting character for today's world, but I'm not sure if for Shakespeare because of the value system. So the values have changed. And nowadays, back in Shakespeare time and even ancient Greek times, so we have to think about both times, someone who had over self-esteem, overconfidence and over optimism, which are Nick Bottom's main trait. He's very over the top. He's very completely confident of himself he knows what he's doing he's he's the man he's i'm gonna do this this way um but i think those are traits that are very relevant i think being overconfident what's to say overconfident to to have like a lot of confidence i want to say to have a lot of confidence to be to have a lot of optimism 
And he is very much a hands-on person. He does, now he directs maybe badly sometimes to play. He gives too many recommendations. But all in all, he's a very sort of kind of proactive, uh, of course, egotistical, yeah, sure. But I think it's the kind of character traits, even though it might be over the top, that we could maybe learn from. I feel like I could learn from Nick Bottom. I would like to have some of Nick Bottom's traits. Uh, and when I see like the four to have lovers, the overconfidence. yeah, I'd like to have the enough confidence that he has because he basically just he gets everything done. The thing is, at the end of the play, at the wedding, uh, there are several play troops, uh, theatrical troops that can play, and the king and the Duke of Athens chooses one, and he chooses Nick Bottom's one. The idea is, I think that Nick Bottom he gets rewards. Nick Bottom always gets rewards. He the queen of the fairy falls in love with him and she treats him like a god. And he also gets picked by the Duke of Athens to, to act out uh, in this play. The Nick, Nick Bottom is the luckiest Shakespeare character ever. But why is he the luckiest Shakespeare character ever? Perhaps because he's quite unaware and of, of like, he's quite unaware of misfortune. He only sees, look, he sees the glass is always full. And this might be a but good trait. Am I remembering this wrong? Because my understanding was that uh, Quince, the carpenter, was the one who actually organized the play. He was kind of in charge of, of, of Bottom and the others. Yeah, but Nick Bottom's always interfering. He always knows better. Mm. There is a bit of a Donald Trump aspect in Nick Bottom, which I don't like. You see, that's the... there Again, there's a bit of a... You can have too much. You can have a kind of a Donald Trump kind of like, I know better. I'm going to direct this. Yeah, we're we're going to... We're going to do this, you know what I mean? Just like that. But I mean, there's also this sense of like, no, I'm just going to like a Dr. Wayne Dyer. I'm going to law. Just, 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 just be positive. Just do, mm. just do your thing. Well, just uh, Aristotelian uh, virtue ethics kind of imply that, you know, on any kind of given trait, there's a way to go too much and a way to go too little. And you want to be yeah, right exactly. in the middle, you know, even with exactly. something as simple as courage, you don't want to be, so courageous that you're foolhardy and you run out and get killed. Exactly. You know, everything you want to find the, the kind of happy medium. Exactly. Yeah. And Nick Bottom, but Nick Bottom might be, uh, it might be over the top, but Nick Bottom is kind of like, there's something also very Nietzschean about him. There's something like a, a bit of a Nietzschean child. He just does what he wants to. He, he He's not angered. He's not frustrated like the lovers because everyone is angered. Like all the kings, uh, the king of the fairies, Duke of Athens, angered. The lovers, mm-hmm. they're frustrated. Um, you know, uh, Titania is kind of like both the queen of the Amazons and the queens of the fairies are kind of repressed and they also feel this frustration. Yeah. But my my, my interpretation is. was slightly different. I kind of thought that these um, these workers weren't kind of capable of the kind of high class feeling that the lovers had. Perhaps, maybe, but um, you can see it one or the other way. And they might just be comic relief in the end, so they might uh, might be reading in too much. Um, you bring up something I wanted to ask you: Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons. What is her purpose hmm. in this play? I couldn't really see why she's there. So the Queen of the Amazons, if you look at it historically, she, I mean, Queen of the Amazons, because uh, I want to talk about the feminist aspect of this. And it's not very clear at first either, because it seems like a sexist play at first, actually. The love man who controlled the woman and they also, the woman don't really win at the end. They do 
doesn't nothing really changes. But the Queen of the Amazons, Amazons, basically they're warriors, they're woman warriors, you know. They were woman warriors who just got men to make them pregnant, then turned to f off, and then they raised the child. And if it was a son, they also sent it off to the dad. They're really radical feminists, you could say, in today's modern sense. Hippolyta, her role, Hippolyta, is the same as Titania's. So these are parallel universes, basically. Oberon, Teseus, and Hippolyta. Teseus, Hippolyta, and the real world, Greek world. Oberon, Titania, and the fairy world. I think Hippolyta is a repressed woman. She's never content in the play. So if you read into it, guys, Hippolyta's phrases are never sweet or gentle. They're always kind of like, they're a bit they're a bit kind of frustrated, angry even. But I, I think would say Hippolyta that she doesn't really have that many phrases. I mean, my my understanding of her was that she didn't... I think if you leave her out of the play, nothing changes. Because she... No, but that's the thing. Because, of course, nothing changes. But she is the queen of the Amazons. Why did Shakespeare choose that particular person? Because that's... It's like saying the absolute ultimate radical feminist. I think he's saying something there. And Tezios also tries to repress Hermia. She tells Hermia to stick with her dad. At Tezios, the Duke of Athens, he re- tries to control all the woman. A bit like the play we like, Lysistrata by Aristophanes. There's a theme of like men really desperately trying to repress the woman. Hippolyta should have more to say because she's the queen of the Amazons. But yet she's so repressed that she's lost her identity as well. And this is, again, identity loss. She used to be the queen of the Amazons. Now she's just she's just the Duke of Athens' wife. That's it. So again, another identity lost. That's what I'm talking about, the identities here. Uh, is she married lost. to Theseus? I wasn't clear on that. Or she was just hanging around with him as a kind of guest at court. I, I'm not clear on that, actually. You know, she, she's, um, she's kind of forced to marry him, yeah. So it's like right. the whole the whole play takes place during their wedding, which takes a few days actually. And at the end, the wedding is complete, and she doesn't have anything to say anymore. This is very very dark actually. Again, there's a very dark aspect because it's like you're just taking a woman and and just eliminating her identity. And there, but I think there's also a feminist um, aspect here of like they're all very feminine. Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, and then Titania, queen of the fairies. Um, Hippolyta is already being, she didn't, that's very important actually, I don't know if you noticed, but Hippolyta didn't mean to marry Tezeo. She was kind of forced to it. And Titania, queen of the fairies, doesn't want to marry Oberon, so she hasn't married, I'm not sure if she, maybe she's married him. No, no, I don't think they've married. The idea is, I think both of these women don't want this. But like the men are really forcing them and doing devious tricks. So Tezeo's Duke of Athens might have done political tricks and like killed or I don't know, killed Hippolyta's, I don't know, armies. And Oberon's doing the same thing. It's all about the play is very much about men trying to conquer women and suppress them. It is. And it's the same with Lysander and Demetrius, completely superficial man, in my opinion. I know nothing about Lysander and Demetrius. Um they just they just want why do they why they're so desperate to be with Hermia and Helen there? Yeah, this we, we knew nothing we knew nothing else about them. And that's and what I, I find interesting that, about the player, I right? Think with that thought, PJ, I think we've come full circle. Do you think that we should leave it there? Um yeah, we can leave it there. I just want to th- say to you guys that we really recommend the play. And I just recommend that you read it a second time as well. 
see if you agree with us. Um, but I think um, basically you can also just read it lightheartedly. But I think it just has a lot of interesting political and uh, general um, and identity themes in it. But all in all, it's a very lighthearted play. And I hope you can enjoy it. So have fun. Cool. Well, I think that'll do us. Um, guys, check us out, booksboys.com, where you can find all the different links to our other projects and all the different places to follow us and tell your friends. And that's us. All right, guys. See you. Welcome to the second episode of Playboys. We're going to talk hey. about some plays. How are you, PJ? I'm doing great. How are you, Dean? I'm grand. I'm grand. I'm really, really loving getting back into getting back into Shakespeare. I, I know. Me too. It's just it's fantastic. I'm really digging it. Yeah. Do you know what I'm and... loving? I'm loving being able to pick a play together uh-huh. and read it and talk about it. It's nice because the way I did yeah. Shakespeare last time was... I just started at the beginning and worked all my way through nonstop in order. But most of the first plays were all the the, the kings and especially no. the Henrys. And the I was so yeah. worn out after those that I didn't enjoy the other ones <laughs> as much as I could have done. So this is much better. Yeah, and it's, and it's great to just have someone to talk with because you just, yeah, not to be having to rush through it and stuff. I'm enjoying it, uh, doing it with you as well. And just getting to it. And some of these I haven't read before. I didn't read all the Shakespeare plays like you, so it's very fresh. We can't, uh, and we yeah. can't all be um we can't all be as, as pompous as I am, you know, to point out to everyone on a regular basis that I've read the complete <laughs> works of Plato, Shakespeare and Dickens, you know. We, we... Just just like just like hi, my name is Dean. Uh, by the way, I've read everything Charles Dickens ever wrote <laughs> and Plato and Shakespeare. So therefore, thou must like me. That's basically your, your opening line. I know, yeah. <laughs> well, why uh, don't anyway, you but... tell the secret? Which play are we talking about today? We're talking about the fabulous, the one and only, The Tempest. Well, we did hint at that last time, so I don't know how big a secret that is. but Well, I suppose so, yeah. But um, the reason why I chose this one, so we're kind of choosing them together, but some of them um, are more mind choice, some of them are more Dean's choice. Now, th- these first are, two are more mind choice, I think, right? So Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. And the reason I chose those two first, as I mentioned before, is that they're the only ones from Shakespeare where there is a fantasy involved, except perhaps Macbeth and the witch scene. That's a very minor scene. Just in general, mm. magic is not present in Shakespeare. And I thought, I thought we could talk about these. Now, The Tempest came later. So Tempest is a, is a later it's play. It's one, one of his last plays, if I remember correctly. It's a very late period play. For yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And um, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, do you want to tell the synopsis or should I? Dean, who no, wants work, to go? work away, work away. So The Tempest is uh, basically, it's about a storm, I suppose. It starts off in the Mediterranean. And it's basically the king's ship. Uh, the king is called Alonso. He's the king of Naples or Napoli. And he's in a ship that's just basically, it's just 
it's the end basically they're all going to die and that's the way it looks they're all going to die it's a tempest and there's nothing they can do and everyone's jumping off the ship is all very dramatic but yes everyone jumps off the ship or falls unconscious but actually no one dies not a single person they all end up ashore safe and sound uh, with their garments intact and, not only intact uh, but in better condition than than hitherto well, uh, quotes, not a hair perished or their sustaining garments, nor blem- not a blemished. Uh, sorry, I'll say that again. Quotes, not a hair perished or their sustaining garments, not a blemish, but fresher than before. Indeed. And why is this? It's because Prospero, the former Duke of Milan, um, has learned a bit of magic. He's been stuck on that island for years with his daughter Miranda, and he's been stuck there because his brother, his brother, um, well, his brother was not, he didn't like his older brother being the Duke, uh, Antonio. So Antonio didn't like Prospero being the Duke. And instead of killing him, though, because he thought that would make him unpopular and the king, so the king conspired with him, they sent off Prospero and his daughter Miranda to seize, basically. Um, and hoping, hoping they just die, you know. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting moral dilemma, right? It's kind of like saying, "Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't kill anyone, you know. I just, I to just sort of, oh, sure, bless them. They just sort of died there, you know. I just, she just meant to send them on a cruise, you know. It's a kind of very, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. And they end up on an island. He raises Miranda, who's basically never been in civilization. Um, and yeah, it's basically him taking advantage of the king of Naples. Alonso and his own brother uh, Antonio being on a ship nearby, and he sends a tempest uh, and his and his sort of um, attendant um, spirit. He has a spirit called Ario, and Ario. together they manage to form a tempest that brings the boats to the island uh, with with a scheme in mind. Um, I don't want to say too much to why he does it. Now that uh, what I like about the tempest is that we're not exactly percent sure what Prospero is planning, but there's a whole plan that goes from beginning to the right to the end. And he's trying to, he's just trying to accomplish several things, which needs a lot of timing. It's very much about timing Tempest and about, um, yeah, he's like, he's, he's kind of like a puppet master, I suppose. Uh, Prospero is, isn't he? I he mean, that's is. the way. I... I mean, it's, it's helped by the fact that he has obviously Ariel who, you know, is yeah. a spirit can, can bring about the situations that he wants, can influence events and and people. So, you know, that that helps him in his sort of puppet mastery. Exactly. And it's kind of a it's kind of a Deus ex machina device, isn't it? Like having Ariel there because it's kind of just he can Shakespeare with the with Ariel can kind of do anything and everything is kind of okay. And I mean extraordinary things happen, but it's okay because he's a magician, Prospero, and Ariel is like a spirit that can just do anything in fact just anything so it's kind of a yeah it makes everything very believable and uh, he sort of gets away with murder doesn't he Shakespeare because he, the logic is just thrown out the window isn't it uh, with uh, the Tempest yes but it's it's actually nice it's refreshing a little bit to see yeah, that like it, yeah. you know because as you say it's it is rare I mean I know it doesn't seem rare because we just did Midsummer Night's Dream but then you've got a whole yeah. load of other plays with no fantastical elements so it is yeah, exactly it is refreshing to have to have that extra license to play around a little bit more with your story exactly yeah 
Um, so what were your thoughts about the Tempest? So, I mean, we continue the story in a second, but I mean, that's just the beginning, basically. Um, I mean, what do you think of the character uh, Prospero to begin with? So the main character, arguably, of the play. Yeah, no, I would say the main character is a fair point. Yeah. I felt for Prospero yeah. because yeah. at the end of the day, he is the rightful the rightful Duke of Milan. And, yeah. you know, he, he's, as you say, he's been essentially exiled and he is a strong character. It's not really explained, you know, in detail how he it's referenced once, I think, but, you know, how he comes mm-hmm. to have these abilities, you know, how he has Ariel. Um, I... But not not in a lot of detail. I think I think it is mentioned once. Yeah. But um, I liked him actually. I, I I saw him as the as the hero of the of the piece. Really, I I thought that he deserved his position back. He deserved his position back, didn't he? And um, I thought he's quite a complex character because he's not a hundred percent. You can't say he's a he's a good kind of person either because he does borderline kind of mean things as well. I feel like he he's not nice to his slave Caliban and I want to get back to this second I think he's a fascinating character but uh, basically um, one subplot is that the Miranda and Prosper were not alone on the islands there was a witch basically basically there was outcast called Sycorax uh, or Sycorax and uh, she also had a son kind of like just like kind of a monster son they call him uh, called uh, Caliban or um, yeah, Caliban. Yeah, yeah, Caliban. Yeah, and Prosper and Prosper and Miranda don't treat Caliban at all well. Like it's, no, they, it's they shocking. don't. They don't. Shocking. It's more um, shocking to see that from Miranda, you know, because Prospero, yeah. he is that strong character, and as you say, sometimes he, you know, he's not even always nice to Ariel, really. But it's a bit more surprising seeing uh, Miranda all, also be be quite cruel with Caliban. Like really cruel with is Caliban. I think that's very interesting. I think though, I think perspectives have changed though. You know, because this was written between sixteen ten and sixteen eleven, so over four hundred years ago. And I think it's very interesting that the Tempest at that time it was kind of perhaps okay because they thought the society because they thought it was okay to treat savages like this. They call them savages, but it just makes me think of colonialism. I think it's very interesting to see that um, nowadays I don't feel the Tempest is that popular because it's got that inherent racism in it that Prosper and Miranda have. Caliban is a monster. He's not a monster. He's a human being. But he's described as a savage monster, deformed. And it makes me think, the Tempest makes me think a lot about America and about colonialism. And I'm just wondering, though, how conscious was Shakespeare about it, criticizing it, or did he just take it as uh, this was okay? It was okay to maltreat uh, American savages, you know, and this is obviously hugely controversial nowadays. But I'm wondering how okay was it back in Shakespeare's times, you know? And yeah, early, um, early 17th century, I would say it was fairly yeah. run of the mill. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that anyone seeing this play performed at the time would have been outraged by by the treatment of Caliban. I think they would have taken it as as normal. Perhaps not, no, but I feel like Caliban is the pers- uh, person I relate with the most. Because, uh, uh, all right, so you have to understand, people, that Caliban, there's a shocking scene in it where Prospero says, it's basically understood that Caliban actually tried to rape Miranda at one point earlier in the story. Uh, it's a very minor detail, and yeah. 
and he said because he says that oh i could have peopled the island with caravans uh had you not stopped me and and yeah so it's like caliban is not a good character but he's kind of like a victim character he is a victim he's a product of his environment isn't he it's a product of his of of the mean environment he's been and his how did his mom die that's not even that clear and like yeah, because yeah, we, we didn't yeah. stress this before, but his mum, uh, the sort of witchy character, does she not appear witcher. in the in the play. You know, she does yeah. not appear in the play at all. She just kind of died, you know. Like, and and uh, it's Caliban at the beginning. He does say like, "Oh, uh, thou hast treated me well. Thou hast taught me all kinds of things." Um, to prosper, so prosper was a father figure at the beginning, but then he says, "Yeah, but that was at the beginning, and then you took my island away from me. I'm the, I'm really the king." So Kalaman thinks he's a, he's the king of this island, and he's very bitter about me, and he even says to to Miranda, he says, um, which I find interesting, he says, "You taught me language, and my profit on it is I know how now how to curse." Um, so it's a bit like, um, yeah, even language, like even he's learned English, well, Italian, I suppose, really, in, in that time. Um, but like, he's not even, he's not grateful. He's, he's like, they, they've taken something away. They forced some kind of what he sees as sick culture, like sick white culture upon his uh, native culture. That just reminds me all about colonialism and about American people having to learn Spanish, but what happens to their, or English, what happens to their real culture? So again, I'm, I'm sorry, I think I'm getting very dark again, just like with Midsummer. <laughs> I don't know why I'm reading all this darkness into Shakespeare lately. But enough I read about that. Very superficially. But it's interesting that you you find um, more empathy for Caliban. Don't get me wrong, the way they yeah. treat him was is quite, quite mean, particularly in the early acts of the play. Yeah. And yeah, no, yeah, I did have some sympathy for him, of course. But yeah. at the same time, um, as soon as they say, you know, well, we used to treat you, you know, he, he complains about his treatment and they say, we used to treat you well until you tried to rape my daughter. That kind mm-hmm. of, they lost me at that point. You know, the empathy just dissipated immediately for me at that point, you know. Yeah, I suppose so. But it's just like uh, any kind of criminal, right? I mean, you lose empathy, but at the same time, there's a reason why they became this way. Uh, what, what, did, what did you find particularly interesting about... Um, uh, the Tempest or the characters because uh, that, that's my main highlight Caliban is impossible really interested in those characters mm-hmm. I, f- I felt for Miranda because I felt that she had obviously Daughter, she was yeah. a sweet girl she had tried to to bring on Caliban to improve him to give him mm. that language that education only to to actually almost get too close to him and and you know om- almost get, uh, get assaulted sexually by him and I, I felt for her actually but then I mean, do, you, do we want to get enough into the plot to mention some of the things that happened later with Miranda, or, or yeah, I think, how you think? Well, I think I think we could I think we can mention, guys. It's minor spoiler, so you can just uh, you can just you can just not listen for a second. But basically, <laughs> uh, please do listen. Actually, uh, basically, please Miranda... listen. Yeah, can we can we stress on the general rule <laughs> of the podcast? Please listen. <laughs> yeah, please listen, guys. Don't don't turn off uh, your radios or phones or whatever. Uh, don't, Miranda, don't turn down that dial. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's it's Shakespeare, so there's got to be some love plot in there, right? Do you want to do you want to say what happens with Miranda? Yeah, what she's. It's the love plot. It's the love guy down that is necessary in every play. Course, it's, in it's in, in my opinion, in in every thing, we always need this, you know. 
And of course, she falls in love with um, with Ferdinand, who is actually the the what son it? of Alonso, the the king of Naples. So that's an interesting, what unexpected kind of twist that'll bring the characters together later. But uh-huh. Uh-huh. it's one of those things where he's ba- apart from Caliban. You know, Ferdinand is basically the only person <laughs> she's really seen in years apart from her father. <laughs> And she immediately falls in love with him. Immediately. Love at first sight. And her father literally says, like, he's not that great. He's just the only guy you've met. Be, you yeah, know, be aware he's the only guy you've ever met. <laughs> he actually says, I actually, I, I, I think he says he is a Caliban to most other men or something like yes, that. Yes, he says he's Again, probably he a Caliban kinda... to most other men. <laughs> So the Caliban is getting a lot of uh, grief, I'm afraid. But yeah, that is. Oh, but actually, that's the genius of Shakespeare because you might think like, oh, what a what a coincidence, the prince. But no, no, wait, that's the point. Prosper is a magician. He's obviously a master plan. This was Ariel. That's the the son, Ferdinand. Um, is alone. He he's 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 on a different part of the island while the others are on a, are all together. Um, not so they're like three or four different groups. And just Ferdinand's on his own, and Ariel's guiding him to. Uh, beautiful Miranda, and this is all masterminded, you know. So it's all, but it's great because Shakespeare is kind of like with this, with the with Prospero and Ario. He's just he can do anything he wants, and he gets away with it. You don't have to think about logic. That's what I love about the Tempest. There's an interesting juxtaposition here because what I really enjoyed was we are we are seeing that Prospero is masterminded most of the elements of the main plot, but at yeah. the same time. He's not in full control because he didn't particularly want Miranda to fall in love with with Ferdinand, not knowing who Ferdinand was, of course, at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, then we have this other story with when Caliban meets um, Trinculo and Stefano, oh, the yeah. jester and the drunken butler, and that's a more crazy, wilder story. You know, that's it's outside of that realm of control of, of Prospero. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I find that very interesting. Uh, I love that small subplot. I think Stefano is a very uh, Nick Bottom kind of character. I mean, I feel he like is. he is the Nick Bottom of uh, of the Tempest guy. So you enjoy that. It's 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 it reminds me of the whole actors kind of getting together in forest parts, Nick Bottom parts. It it's kind of like comic relief. But again, just like with Nick Bottom in the previous ap- episode I mentioned, I think Stefano Trinculo Caliban that scene is a very sort of social critique again. It's it's basically kind of the nouveau rich, I think. It's basically the um, the upper class getting power and wanting to become kings. Yet they yet they're still their base. They're still basically the average jack. Uh, they're, they're, I think Shakespeare's kind of playing about was yeah the new rich, but they you know they're they're still like they're not really they're not they might not be suited for this part yet. I mean they're they're drunkards basically they're alcoholics. And it's and it's yeah, it's a very funny scene though. I don't want to say anything more actually because it's actually a great scene. Yeah, no. and I can't actually remember if it's Trunculo or Ste- or Stefano, but one of them decides that he's going to be king of the island, right? Exactly. Oh, Stefano! Oh, Stefano will become uh, king of the island because Caliban has respect for Stefano. So only because Stefano um, brings alcohol, and brings that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. But that's no, but that's a very you see the whole social critique in it. There's another colonialist social critique, which is basically uh, alcohol and, and tobacco and drugs destroyed all all kinds of nations. 
across the world. I mean, you've got you've got the opium wars in China. You've got uh, Native Americans becoming addicted to tobacco, and that's a very interesting fact that alcohol is now in Caliban's life. You know, the, the, the native of the island. Again, my dark reading of Shakespeare. Uh, but there you go. I just find you can. I feel like you can just read anything out of anything, can't you? I mean, I could, that, I could probably have a piece good. of toast. So what, what's really here. interesting, dude, is that yeah. whether or not Shakespeare intended that reading. <laughs> It's almost yeah. irrelevant. The fact that it's yeah, exactly. so relatable that you can read into things that happened at that time or even have modern comparisons says a lot about human nature, almost apart totally. from the author's intention. You know, totally. And guys, that's why that's why we're doing Shakespeare because Shakespeare was, by the way, not necessarily revered for a long time. He, a lot of classicists at the time, didn't like him because he didn't follow the Aristotelian laws of theater. Um, they preferred uh, Christopher Marlowe, I believe, and Ben Jonson at the time. And Shakespeare has ha- has become more popular after Romanticism, and especially his modernist literature. It, 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 it just it, it becomes more relevant as time goes. And I find reading Shakespeare, almost all of his plays are really, really modern. They could have been written yesterday, especially, especially uh, perhaps like um, I find Macbeth a really modern uh, tale or. Even a tempest for post-colonial kind of readings, different, and they're always different themes, so it's great. Yeah, yeah, the only thing is, I suppose, for someone that's not read them before, you have that initial barrier of the slightly mm. older language. Yeah, but once you get yeah. past that, as you say, the actual story could have been written yesterday. You know. Yeah, right. I mean, that's it's quite amazing, actually. I think. Wow. Yeah, uh, and it's a very quotable uh, play. I was just mentioning to Dean earlier. I think. It's got some great. Want to give us uh, the big one? Uh, should I give us the big one? All right, guys. For any dystopian fiction fans, here we go. Um, so Miranda, you know, she has never seen, she hasn't seen that many men before, so it's maybe not surprising. And <laughs> all right, so she goes, but then she sees obviously a lot of men, and they're just normal men. But she goes, "Oh, wonder." How many goodly creatures are there here? How bounteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Oh, brave new world. There we go. To be fair, that was opening up something of a new world for her. You know, it was yeah. a big change to her life. Um, yeah. And of course, she immediately, you know, requires marriage um, because that was just not how it was done. But yeah, that's the big one because that's where we got the title of the famous dystopian novel by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Exactly. And Brave, don't forget, Brave New World has a character uh, in it, uh, basically called Savage. And it does make a lot of references because this guy grew up outside the modern world. Uh, it's completely, Brave New World is very, um, if you properly understand Brave New Worlds, you should read The Tempest, actually. And understand the characters of both Caliban and uh, Miranda, uh, because essentially Miranda is a savage. That's the interesting thing. She's a Victorian savage. It's a very interesting mix, kind of yeah. So I love it. Yeah, it's it's great reading. What can I say? I also love the phrase. Prospero says to Ferdinand at one point. I love the phrase because I was feeling weak at the beginning of of this week, and I thought, oh God, I just and it was actually a bit daunting, and I've. And I and this phrase I just read it the other day, and I thought, wow, this really relates how I felt. It's come on, obey. Thy nerves are in their infancy now, and have no vigor in them. 
he basically put a spell on Ferdinand that he can't move at all. And I thought that phrase, thy nerves are in their infancy. Again, that's a very dark phrase for this post-COVID, or not really post, is it this COVID world. Mm. Thy nerves are in their infancy now. Very scary phrase. There's this one little moment that I really like, and it is later in the play, so it might be sort of a spoiler, but it's not a key moment, really. But mm-hmm. it's when... Um, when Alonso is, you know, he's fearing for his men. He finds some of them, but he's fearing for his son, Ferdinand. The, the, the king of Naples is worrying yeah. for it. And so, he's yeah. saying, you know, he's worried about Ferdinand. And then, you know, he basically just finds him playing chess and, and hanging out with Miranda. But he's worried, you know, that it's going to be, <laughs> what, what has happened to him? You know, what have you done with him? Oh, no, he's just there, you know, just chilling out, just playing chess, you know. Yeah, that's actually that's in the, great. In that's the great. cave or the you know cell, it's described as you know. Yeah, it, it, it's great, right? I love it. Yeah. Um, I suppose we we better wrap up, right? Um, I think so. Yeah. Though, I just want to. Can I just quote one more thing? Of the one Tempest? more. Let's have it. Okay. So uh, this reminds me of Trump. So this is a, a bit mad, but this is a great phrase for all you, um, yeah, for our people. Miranda says about um, uh, Prospero and his mean brother, because Prospero is saying, like, um, mark his condition and the event, then tell me if this might be a brother. And Miranda says, I should sin to think but nobly of my grandmother. Good wombs have borne bad sons. <laughs> wow, and I love that phrase because it's just a bit of a... I just thought of Trump's mother when I read that. Don't know where I gained this strange readings from, but I just thought like, yeah, no, every villain out there has a mother. Just remember that, guys. So let's just respect our mothers. And it's just an interesting philosophical perspective. I have to say, I think Miranda's quite a, uh, she's got a lot of kind of Victorian traits, as you say, but I think she's quite a strong female character nevertheless. Interesting perspective, uh, perspective she has. So anyway, that's enough about me. Uh, ranting on I think, about. I think she's probably my favorite, uh, my favorite character. And to be fair, Miranda. I think she's very strong. Yeah, because you see, sometimes the female characters are not quite as strong as I would hope them to be in Shakespeare. And I think she's interesting in the sense that she grew up isolated, reared by an eccentric dad, and she has in- interesting uh, thoughts. Like, yeah, has a quite a strong voice. I find. Yeah. Well, I think we will leave it there. Um. Don't forget, anyone who's listening to this uh, on our free preview, that this is going to be uh, you know, a lot more of this kind of content available yeah. uh, soon at a premium. And if you're already listening in the future, then hopefully you're, in, you're enjoying this and, and more to come. Don't forget, of course, you can get in touch with us about any of our content at booksboys.hotmail.com. And the only thing I wanted to say, because I didn't mention it last time, and I don't want to mention it every time we do this, but just thank you to trapdoor and in particularly oh. uh wiggly for our intro music that we've been using on the uh on the playboys thanks uh, guys it's awesome that's a little clip from a song called aztec versus Aztown, um from their cool. 50 years of of trapdoor album which you can also find in itunes i think that's awesome. us awesome well guys take care um... and we're not gonna shall we reveal the the next one or should it be a surprise uh, I suppose do you want to reveal this is your choice so you can go ahead okay. yeah. the next one was was my choice it's one of my favorites I, I just reread it today and remembered why it was one of my favorites it's yeah. the comedy of errors so there we go it's a great it's a great one guys so tune in for that one uh, quite different to the tempest uh, but just as equally you know ge- genius writing so it's great stuff
Guys, patreon.com slash booksboys. Please sign up. At the lowest tier, you'll be able to get yourself some bonus content. We're going to have all the Bufanda boys. The Playboys are on there. There's going to be some Agatha Christie content coming soon as well. Um, I might throw up a few old musician interviews from the archives that I've done. There'll be plenty of bonus content on there for you. And as well as that, of course, at higher tiers, you can also tell us what books to read on the main show and uh, get yourself a Books Boys t-shirt as well. So plenty of goodies there for you. And of course, it really, really, really helps to support the show and it means that we can devote more time to it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.